with us. We have, do have one addition to our uh, sick list. Uh, Brother Jacob England, the son of Carrie and Beverly England, uh, broke his nose on a youth outing last week and had to have surgery. Uh, he was a, a student this last year at Freed Hardeman. Uh, so keep him in your prayers and Brody in your prayers as well as they're going canoeing this weekend. Uh, don't need him breaking his nose either. So uh, glad that you're all here this morning. On September 9th, the White House Blue Devils will travel to Portland to play its annual football game. We're all looking forward to that. Football season is upon us. Lots of people will be at that game and many others this season. We like competition, don't we? McDonald's has Burger King. Nike has Reebok, and Coke has Pepsi. Even Superman has Lex Luthor, Batman has the Joker, and Spider-Man has Dr. Octopus. Competition is a typical part of life. Over the last two weeks, we've taken an economics approach, uh, looking at some lessons brought to us through Scripture. Two weeks ago, we looked at marketing the gospel. Last week, we looked at understanding the customer. So very important as we look to evangelize our world. And this week, we're going to look at understanding the competition. Definitely something we need to consider. Have you ever wondered what Satan was thinking? If we knew exactly what he was thinking, we might be able to understand him better and thereby conquer this competition that is constantly trying to overcome us and throw us off our Christian path. One man on earth in the modern era seemed to understand Satan really well in a strange way. His name is C.S. Lewis. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, his Christian novel published in 1944 is one of his most, uh, 1942 rather, is one of his most famous books. It is a fictional work, but addresses theological issues primarily those to do with temptation and resistance to it. Jesus Himself used stories to teach heavenly truths. We call those parables. And this is much like what Lewis does in the Screwtape Letters. The book is a collection of letters written from a lesser demon named Screwtape to an even lesser demon named Wormwood. Screwtape mentors Wormwood and instructs him on his responsibility in fully capturing the soul of a particular man whom they simply call the patient. And C.S. Lewis's take on the interaction between a demon of Satan and a man on earth is chillingly accurate. We're going to look at that this morning. In the 31 letters which comprise the book, Screwtape gives Wormwood detailed advice on various methods of undermining God's Word and thereby entrapping the patient. The book is insightful on the nature of Satan and his methods, but also in regards to our nature as humans. This morning we are going to look at excerpts from the Screwtape letters and then consider the Scripture that they are based on or, or perhaps loosely reference. And considering how Satan thinks will help us better see his methods, the more we know his tactics, the better we can battle and overcome him. On one such page, C.S. Lewis, from 
wormwood, from screw tape to wormwood. Now, imagine as you read the white slides, that is an excerpt from the screw tape letters. And this is screw tape writing to wormwood. And he simply says this, It is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. What is Satan keeping out of your mind? Let's look at Galatians chapter 5, please. Galatians chapter 5. You may think to yourself, well, I don't do this or, or I don't do that. And, and Satan, he doesn't have me. And you may be right on a lot of levels. You may be correct on a lot of topics. We could list various sins up here. and You could point out, you know, I, I don't do any of those. But there's one maybe that you do that we perhaps forgotten. Satan, though, can very much be of the business of keeping things out of your mind. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Beautiful words, beautiful things that Christian people should be about every day, all day, all the time. But for various reasons, for some personal reasons that you may have, these things are not in your life. And perhaps because Satan is keeping them out. Perhaps you've gotten close to being at peace. Perhaps you've gotten close to being a kinder person. And yet, Satan does what he does, and it keeps that stuff just, just out enough so that you're not fully what you know that you can be. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. So if you have put on Christ, if you are a child of His, these are the things that you should be about. But Satan is very cunning. Satan is very, very cunning. He can keep things out of your mind. Let's look at this though. What will fall into your mind if he keeps these things out in verses 22 through 24? Something's going to fall in. Something's going to fall in, perhaps even by accident. And that's okay with Satan because he's cunning. Galatians 5 and verse 19, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Satan's not necessarily all the time putting these in, but he's keeping the others out, letting these in. Okay, nature hates a vacuum. If something's not there, something's going to fill it. Alright, and that's the same thing with your spirituality, with your spiritual life. So if you're not putting in those good things, if you're not doing that, you're not keeping, keeping Satan out. He's not terribly interested that you do all of those evil things in verses 19 through 21. He just needs you to latch on to one. He just needs you to latch on to one little thing. And he's got you whether it's idolatry or division or strife. You see, those run counterproductive to the fruits of the Spirit. If He can get just one little foothold on you, He's got you because He is a cunning, He, is a cunning, he has a cunning way about Him. Next, we read this. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it while really it is finding its place in Him. 
Wealth in and of itself isn't evil or sinful. Simply a tool. By prospering, we can bless other people. We can do great, wondrous things with the finances if we use them in a, in a good way to the glory of God. The hardworking spirit is blessed in Scripture. We read of that here. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who pursues worthless things lacks sense. Prosperity can be a good thing. The, the, the woman in Proverbs chapter 31 was prosperous in her business dealings, to be sure. However, the warnings in Scripture are evident. 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money, not money itself, not prosperity itself, but the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Because people loved money, because they saw that dollar sign and they, and they went after that, they forgot about spiritual things and they wandered from the faith and this hurt them. This pierced them through with many griefs, made them very sad. You know, more money and more money and more money. I thought you were supposed to be happy, but you're not. Because Satan can use prosperity also to take hold of you. Let's look at Luke chapter 12, please. Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse 16. Famous story about a man who was going to do things with his prosperity. Luke chapter 12 and verse 16. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? He had been blessed. Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns. I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Instead of saying, I want to bless people with how much I have been blessed with, instead he wanted it for himself. He kept it for himself. He said, I'll build bigger barns and I'll store up all the goods that I have. And he forgot to take care of his soul. He forgot to take care of his spiritual side because Satan had shown him the deceptive beauty of wealth. And so he went after that rather than taking care of his spiritual side. Of course, this is a conversation between two demons. And they see God as their enemy. You see this throughout the book. But here... Screwtape says to Wormwood, God, our enemy, teaches his children to abandon their self-interest. In reality, once people abandon themselves, God actually helps them to become better than what they were. Satan indeed is cunning. And Satan himself understands God's principles and understands what he is trying to do to save mankind from his sins. And Satan has to work against that. And he actually warns here, you know, be careful about God because he, he knows what he's doing. And if people will abandon themselves and not be selfish and think of other people and bless other people, they'll be better than they ever thought they would. See, Satan even recognizes that here in this particular passage. The individual 
is the God of today. Satan has convinced many of this very thing. That you do what you think is best for you. You go for what you think and, and don't consider anything else. Don't consider the wisdom in Scripture. I would say with full assurance that many of us, all of us here today who have prospered, have done so because we followed the Word of God. Not necessarily prospered materially, that, that's not what I mean, but you look at yourself in this moment right now, and the good things that have happened to you are because God has blessed you, not because you followed selfish ambition, not because you did what you thought was right, but because you did what you believed Scripture to say and what Scripture teaches. That is where we should find our identity. God says to follow Him. We read of this in Matthew 16. Then Jesus said to His disciples, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself and take up His cross and follow Me. Many people say, well, God knows who I am, and God knows my heart, and, and, and God loves me and just wants me to be happy. You know, that's not it. This is what the passage says. Take up the cross of Jesus and follow Him. And when you take up His cross, what that means is you're sacrificing yourself for what He teaches and for what He wants you to become. Our identity should be found in God, not in selfish ambition, not in what we think, not in our own philosophies that could not stand up to any sort of debate, but rather to the Word of God that for centuries now has brought people to where God wants them to be and to a happier life even as well. For God Himself will make us complete. James chapter 1 and verses 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I don't want to lack, I want to be perfect. I want to be complete. But I want to do that in the eyes of God. Not in the eyes of man. Not in my own eyes, in my own ways. But I want my Heavenly Father to look down on me and see me and, and complete me. Because that's what people are looking for. All the places they chase after, all the things, all the pleasures they chase after in this world. They're trying to find the last two lines. They're looking for it and they keep looking and they'll keep on looking. And it's just an endless road going after something that they never find. It's just a continued horizon and they never reach the end of that. But the Christian knows, the Christian knows that when his identity is in God, he knows he will have finally rest. He or she will finally have a place that they can stop and say, God is with me and I need nothing else. And it's at that point that you can look to God in true assurance of faith and know that He will take care of you. If there's one thing that Satan understands, it's religion. If you can once get him to the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all. And more amusing. As Satan looks at people with a lukewarm faith like we read of in the church of Laodicea, Revelation 13, or Revelation 3 rather, he is amused. He is amused by those who straddle the fence. He is amused by those who say they're Christians and yet they are not. 
He is amused because He's actually the one who has you. Many people that think that religion is good for a lot of things, but not for everything. Your religion, your relationship with God should be your all. It should be your everything. It should be what drives your every decision in life. Because it's the Christian life that takes you places that that nothing else can, and that is a complete life. That is a perfect life. Lacking in nothing. That is a life that can endure difficulties and come out shining because your faith has been tried. Matthew chapter 4 says this, Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him, Jesus, stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Satan knows how to use the Word of God against the very people who espouse to follow it. And he does this directly with the Son of God in his face, quoting Psalm chapter 91 and verse 12. Satan knows religion, and that's why he is so dangerous. Satan can use your religion. Satan can use your faith against you if you're not careful. I find that when people do this the most is when they're they're cherry-picking passages from Scripture. They're cherry-picking certain things. Well, see, the Bible says here, completely taken out of context, completely read in the, in, in the incorrect method, meaning taken out of the historical context. Uh, Brother Adam Shepard doing a fantastic job downstairs as we discuss Revelation, which of course has to be read in that context. But people will take it and they'll twist passages and they'll do things and say things that are not Christ-like at all. That if you read other passages, it actually contradicts what they're trying to stand up for. And Satan is having a grand old time with people that do that. Because Satan knows how to use our religion against us. But we know what it says here. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God in wealth. You can't serve God in mammon, your King James Version says. So what do you do? Where are you in your life? Is everything you're doing in your life pleasing to God? If not, Satan might have a hold on you. He might have that grasp on you. Whether it's through your entertainment, through your devices, through some habit, through some part in your heart that needs to change. Even today, Satan's doing something and he's got you grasped in one way or another. But you can't serve him and God. Satan's okay with it, but God's not. God wants you to serve Him fully. In the next passage that we're looking at this morning, it says this, Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe, from which every trace of our enemy seems to have vanished, and asks why he has been forsaken, and still obeys. Satan gets nervous when you obey God. He gets even more nervous when you yourself look around and wonder where God is, and yet you're still being obedient. And if that's you, what a strong faith you have. Many of us struggle with that. Jesus struggled with that. 
when He was in the garden, when He was on the cross, looking around. You know, I am enduring this difficulty. Where is my Heavenly Father? You know, He even asked that. Why have you forsaken me? Dark times follow the children of God. David wrote about it in Psalm 23 when he talked about walking in the valley of the shadow of death. And whenever you're in a place like that in your life, you probably look around and wonder where God is, but you still follow Him. That's a a sign of a great faith. That's a sign that will go through dark times. And even though it's completely dark, you know you still have that small match that's still burning. That faith that says, even though things aren't great right now, I know God is still with me. I know Job felt that way. Jesus, as I've mentioned, felt that way. Paul in prison. You know, when he was in prison, he's, he's probably wondering, you know, where is God at this moment? But what did he do? He continued to sing, he continued to teach, he continued to serve God, and that brought more and more people to Christ. But you've got to understand that it is Satan in those moments that will try to reach out and get you in those darkest of times. James 1, as we read a moment ago, James is telling us to consider it joy when we go through trials. Why? The testing of our faith, it produces endurance. Your faith is tested in those dark times. And Satan thinks that this is the best time to deceive or tempt you. That's why he encountered Jesus at the end of his 40-day fast, as we read a moment ago. You know, Satan didn't encounter Jesus early on in his fasting when he was in the wilderness alone, but rather he went to him towards the end, at the very end of his fasting. For he knew that's when Jesus would be the weakest. When are you the weakest? Whenever you're going through a difficult time, when work is hard, when families aren't so good, when you're worried about something, when you're anxious, those are your weakest times. And I tell you today, Christian, continue praying to our Heavenly Father. That will show Satan the strength of your faith and that will show God that you do truly love and want to be with Him. For when you're in a dark place, don't leave God, but rather squeeze Him tighter. When I was about 10 years old, my family was in Pennsylvania. My grandmother lived near there. We went to a state park. and Me and Dad were hiking. We were near some falls. And Dad said, you know, bend down here. Let's touch the water. Feel how cold that is. And I bent down and whew, off I went down the falls. And I remember doing this and I felt something on my arm. And it was my dad belly surfing down the stream with me. And he had me. He had me. And my knee hit a rock and we stopped before we went over. About a 20 foot falls. Dad had me that day. God's got you. God's got you at all times. Even in the darkest of times, God's got you. But you've got to remember that. And tell Satan to get out of here because you have a Heavenly Father who loves you. Satan and time. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot without sudden turning, without milestones and without signposts. Satan doesn't get you all at once. He gets you little by little. He gets you by what you listen to. He gets you by the friends at school, by the friends at work, by the little things that just annoy you and annoy you, and annoy you over time. That's how Satan gets many people. Those in the church, those who have a faith, he gets you over a gradual slope. 
It's a downward slope. I, there's a hike out in northeastern Tennessee. It's five miles this way. It's a gentle slope, but it's five miles. Constantly up. You get very close to the Appalachian Trail once you reach the end. But the slope down is much easier. right? Much easier to walk down. And that's how Satan gets you. Just a little easier all the way down. Mark chapter 10. Let's turn there. Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 17. Here we read, it's the story of the rich young ruler. Fantastic story that illustrates well what someone must do as they consider their Christian life and as they consider how much time they have. Mark chapter 10 and verse 17, As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He tells him, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, because Jesus knew his heart, right? One thing you lack, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. He wants to know what he's got to do. Satan may have him one way or another. It's a gradual slope down. But he's running up to Jesus. You know, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus covers it with him. I've done all that, Lord. What more must I do? And he tells him, sell all your possessions. But at these words, he was saddened. And he went away grieving. For he was one who owned much property. Much property. We live our lives trying to be morally good. But that is not all it takes to follow Jesus. Jesus went down the list of things that He needed to do. I've done those things. I've done those things. For some things, for some people today, your Christian life, many things are, are easy to do for you. Perhaps you've been raised doing that. Perhaps you know, this is something, a, a, a spiritual discipline that you've worked on consistently. Strengthened your faith in that. Like with the things that Jesus listed to Him through the Ten Commandments. But then Jesus tells Him, as He might be telling you today, you lack one thing. There's one thing you lack. Sell all you have. Get rid of that. Do this or do that. There might be one thing today that you lack that you need to follow Jesus. And that's between you and Him. We can talk about it if you like. There might be some things that are blatantly obvious that you don't need to be doing that we could talk about. But perhaps this is also a private matter. But what you must do, speak to someone if you must, or speak to God, as all of us do, but keep that in mind. We want to live morally. We think we've done it right, but there might be something else that's keeping you from Him. Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. Let's turn there. Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 57. Here there are people that want to follow Jesus. And they have, they have really good intentions. Indeed, they do. But let's see what Jesus has to tell them. Because the rich young ruler and, and these people that we're speaking that he's speaking to in verses 57 through 62, they think they have time, especially this passage. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. 
But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. You see, each of these think they have all the time in the world. Each of these think, I've got more time and more time. All the while, Satan is just standing there looking at his watch, just laughing. Because he knows he's got these people with things that are real and true and important to them. But Jesus says more sacrifice, more devotion is required. Verse 62, Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Ultimately, we learn that we can't tell Jesus, let me do this first, and then I'll follow you. Let me sow my wild oats. Let me live how I want, Lord. And, and, and when the time comes, when I feel like it's more convenient, when it, whenever I feel like it, Lord, whenever that time comes, then, then I'll follow you when it's convenient for me. When Jesus called His twelve, He went to them and they put down their nets and they followed Him. They followed Him right then. And Jesus is calling you to do that today as well. Satan is telling you, you got all the time in the world. Jesus is saying, put your hands to the plow and start working with me. Become devoted today. Become that Christian this morning. Stop thinking that you have all the time in the world. Satan wants you to think that. That's how he operates. We need to understand that. Stop putting things off that you know that you need to do, spiritually speaking, this morning. In Proverbs 14 and verse 12, we find these words. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Your way may seem right right now, but is it following God? Is it truly following Him, or have you succumbed to the competition? Are you really on the side of the competition of Satan? If so, I hope you'll come forward this morning and change that. Let's baptize you this morning so that you might be added to the body of Christ and have your sins washed away. Or if you are a Christian and need prayers of forgiveness, come forward this morning as well and let us help you. Won't you come now as we stand and sing?